0: Tough times don't last. They never last. Tough people do.
1: That was author and race car driver Christian Alessio, a Hoosier since 2016. He relocated to Indianapolis from parts west. We'll hear Christian's hope-inspiring life story as he shares how he's driven to live the outside groove in the race of a lifetime. He also has a challenge for you to push your life to the red line on The Hopeful Hoosier, Episode 5. I'm Andy Dix. There's two miles of speedway on the west side of Indianapolis that's billed as the racing capital of the world. Drivers from all over the globe dream of one day taking the checkered flag, kissing the bricks, and drinking the milk after a grueling 500 mile race in the crown jewel of the Car series. I met up with one of those hopeful drivers, Christian Alessio at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Museum to hear him share his amazing story of personal sacrifice, tenacity, and perseverance in overcoming enormous adversity as he pursues his dream to win the Indianapolis 500. At a trim eleven, Christian Alatio looks the part of a motorsports athlete. While he admittedly has a way cool race car driver name, When you hear his history, it would be far more likely to see Christian Alatio as a spectator in the stands than you'd ever expect to see him in the driver's seat in the starting field of the 33 cars for the greatest spectacle in racing. So buckle in, because Christian's story has many unexpected turns and has even hit a few walls so far in his young life. You are in for a ride that's more thrilling than a day at the racetrack. Drivers, start your engines. We're standing in the middle of the Hall of Champions at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway surrounded by winners, and of course <laughs> I include you as a winner, mm-hmm. even though you've not won I'm at this track right yet, but someday, right?
0: But someday, someday that is that is the plan.
1: Now we're also staring at the Borg Warner Trophy, and someday, what do you hope oh, yeah. to see there?
0: The metal bust of my face added to the base of this thing um, and etched really into, into history. On, on so many levels, it's, it, it'll be history-making, it'll be groundbreaking, it'll be something that nobody can ever take away from me. And I've I love, left my mark, you know? I think that what's, what's the point of being alive if you're not gonna leave a mark? And I, I, that's something that goes through my mind every single day. When I just look at the world and how there are eight billion people on it right now and billions and billions more that have lived before, and, and nobody remembers. A generation after the people that you directly influenced, you disappear. Uh-huh. And, and nobody remembers. So I, that, that's what keeps me chasing. I want to do something that makes me immortal, and this is, this is the way I'm going to do it.
1: When you see that trophy, it's on a pedestal, it's lit, it's silver, and it's yeah. rotating. Yeah. And it's faces uh, all different kinds of people. What would make your face different on that trophy than everybody else?
0: I'd be the only diabetic
1: person to have one. Out uh, of the 500, I'd,
0: I'd be the only Army veteran um, of, the, of the modern era to have one. I, I would be the only formerly homeless person uh, who's been on, on this trophy. That, that,
1: that just doesn't happen.
0: And then very lastly, um, I'd be the only minority on, on
1: the trophy as well. So When you th- mm-hmm. stand here looking at that, that's the prize. What really <laughs> stands between you as we stand here today and you holding that trophy and drinking the milk?
0: Money is the, is the first thing that comes to my mind when you ask that question. You know, it's, it's, it's a $2 million day just to do that one day of racing, uh, $2 bucks in, in, in competitive equipment. Even more than that, if you want to be um, a part of a the team that's got the equipment that you know is going to run up front, like a Penske or or a Ganassi or uh, or Andretti. But that's what's keeping from it, and um, just a little bit of patience, you know, as well, uh, on 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 my end. And every day, I'm I'm getting better at, at my craft, and I'm always practicing, always training, because I know the moment's coming. I just know it. I know it, and when it does get here, I'm going to be ready
1: for it. So let's talk about the road to Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. It's been a long and it's been a rough road for you. Indeed. Tell us everything that's gone on to get you to this point.
0: Oh, okay. Well, uh, I was born in West Seattle, uh, across the bridge. Not a bad neighborhood at all. Pretty nice. My, uh, my mom did a heck of a job of providing for me on her own as a, as a single parent. We had a great great house, great, great place to live. And uh, all of a sudden, everything kind of changed. I, I turned eight, and she was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And I didn't really have an idea of what that was or what that entailed or how it works or any of that. And that, I think that was kind of her point. She never bothered to explain anything to me. And I think it was because she didn't want me to worry. But I did start to worry because uh, her health began to deteriorate. There would be times when I'd come out to the living room and uh, she'd have her needle with the insulin in it just sitting in between her fingers and she'd fall asleep in that position and the needle, you know, the, the syringe was still full, she hadn't taken her medicine. And I'd ask, you know, even though I didn't understand what the medicine was actually about, I just knew you had to take it. So I'd ask, like, why, why didn't you take your medicine? And she'd explain that it, it hurts. It hurts. And I, I get that. Needles aren't fun. Needles aren't fun at all. I think it was a combination of that and the fact that she didn't really feel like this was life, like this was living. And I understand now, but it's almost like adults who get diabetes are in a worse position than the children who get it. And I say that because as a type 1, when you're young, you don't know anything different. So you have nothing to compare it to after you've been living your life one way, and then all of a sudden, bam, I can't eat this, I can't eat that, I can't eat And it's all the fun stuff you can't eat, right? Right, 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 right. so off with the cakes, off with the this, off with the, you know, all that stuff. It's it's a tough adjustment. And it's easy to feel like this isn't how life is supposed to go. So she didn't take care of it at all. It was very, very mismanaged, in and out the hospital. There was a point where she couldn't really use her legs anymore, the circulation had gotten so bad. Uh, She was in a wheelchair. It's when she lost the use of her legs that she couldn't go to work anymore. And because she couldn't go to work, uh, she had to go on to government disability assistance. But it was paying a lot less than what it was while she was working. So we had to move. And that's what we did. So we moved to Tacoma. It's about 30, 40 minutes south of Seattle. It's just cheaper. A lot more urban.
1: Christian's mother and father never married his absentee father was consumed with his own dream of playing in the NBA. This left Christian growing up with his single mother, but at 13 years old, Christian's life was about to hit the wall for the first time.
0: Uh, My mom ended up passing away when I was was 13, over Christmas break. (sighs) Man, um, just really took took the wind out of her out of my sales. This is the only person I've known to take care of me. We were just so close, her and I. We were all we had. She didn't really speak to her family a lot or anything, and she was the only family that I had. So we were, we were all we had, the both of us. You know, We were super, super close in that, in that regard. And um, she was gone. And so dealing with that, but having to go, because legally now I'm in the care of my dad. My dad's got to be the most stubborn, bullheaded person I, I, I know, and, and in a weird way I admire it because I'm kind of the same way. You get fixated on a goal and you just, no matter what. The difference is though, I don't have any children. So I, I have the liberty to sacrifice certain things for myself if I feel like it. He didn't, he had me, but chose to keep on chasing that dream. And it's 2018, he still has not reached <laughs> that, that dream right now. Right now, he's still, uh, he's still doing it. But being in the care of him, he wasn't in a financial position to take care of us.
1: Christian's father's dream of playing professional basketball changed to chasing after a career as a technical director in theater. His self-absorbed willingness to make extreme personal sacrifices to pursue his career aspirations came at a high cost to his teenage son, Christian, who involuntarily was forced to trade in a comfortable, safe home environment with his loving mother to a volatile and unstable homeless environment with his estranged father. Christian's home became a 5-by-7-foot storage unit, The sound that welcomed him to his only home was the sound of an overhead door echoing off the cold concrete floor.
0: Instead of getting just a regular job and putting food on the table and living, uh, he put us into a storage unit, $19.95 a month. And that's the cheapest thing you can get to rent. And I remember just coming in there's the big sign, you know, the big red sign, no human occupancy. You know, human occupancy strictly prohibited. And I remember looking at him like, well, I'm, I'm a human. So are, are we supposed to be here? He's like, no, 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 we're not, you know, but we'll, we'll try to make this work. And I'm okay. And it was tough, man. That was, that was tough. That was really, really tough. And trying to keep everything clandestine, trying to keep it all a secret, because uh, it's, 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 it's embarrassing. It was embarrassing for me at the time. The, I, I ended up joining the other football team um, at, at, at my new school just because uh, I needed a place to do laundry. I needed a place to, you know, take a shower. I needed a place to do all the things that you can't do from a storage unit, uh, which took a little bit of the pressure off um, of just trying to live normally. It was still abnormal because uh, the storage unit closes at 8 p.m. Right? Um, and what happens when all the employees go home? The lights go out. They turn the heat off. Why would you turn the heat off? It's because. IT'S MEANT FOR STORAGE STUFF. BOXES DON'T NEED, YOU KNOW, HEAT. <laughs> BOXES DON'T NEED ANY OF THAT. SO it MADE FOR MISERABLE WINTERS, BECAUSE YOU'D BE FREEZING, MAN. I'd, I'd, I'D BE IN THERE JUST ABSOLUTELY FREEZING. And THE floor's MADE OUT OF CEMENT, SO THAT REALLY HOLDS THAT, that COLD IN IT, YOU KNOW, and, AND THAT'S WHAT I'M SLEEPING ON. And IT'S JUST LIKE, AH, YOU KNOW, AND ALL THE LIGHTS ARE OUT. YOU CAN'T DO ANYTHING AFTER 8 PM, BUT SIT PERFECTLY STILL UNTIL THE MORNING for fear of setting off one of the, the motion detectors, You set off the motion detectors, and the police are here. What are you doing? It looks like you broke it. And now, you, you know, you got a way bigger problem than, 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 uh, than what you wanted. Not to mention, when this is the only place you have to live, the police show up, you're out now, you know? You are out of a place to live. Plus, you have to explain everything to them why you're here. We didn't break in, I promise, all right? Um, and, and, and all this stuff,
1: so. How is your dad explaining that this is a normal way to live?
0: He wasn't. He would go out and try to find theater gigs um, as to where he could work on his craft being a a technical director. The problem is, it's Tacoma, Washington. This isn't Broadway. This isn't the hub for for theater, you know. So there's not a lot of gigs going on. And if you do find a gig, it's not paying, you know, it's not paying very well at all. And so, yeah, he, he didn't try to explain it away to me. He just... Look, this is just what needs to what needs to happen, you know, and it's okay because when we do get that big gig, we can go to Broadway. We can do this. We can do all of this. Okay,
1: you know, and what, what what really can I say? You're the adult. I'm trusting you. I have no choice but to trust you. You're in charge. Christian was highly successful at keeping his storage locker homeless lifestyle a secret, even from his teachers. He did, however, manage to find at least one positive adult role model at high school who could offer him hope and encouragement. I had a math teacher
0: in my senior year, uh, Mr. Saki-Fio, and he's a very intuitive man. I don't think he knew exactly what was going on, but he definitely knew something was going on. And him and I, we, we connected really, really well. Uh, I loved his class because I'm terrible at math, and, um, but his class wasn't actually about math. He's a math teacher but uh, the class was basically philosophy. He understood that, you know what, there's nothing I'm gonna teach you here that you're actually gonna use. You're never gonna really need this stuff. I'd rather teach you about life and what's gonna happen next, because that you can actually use, you know. That's what he did, and that's how him and I connected. He took a special liking to me. I took a special liking to him. He was pushing me out of my comfort zone and teaching me that if you do want something, you gotta try it. You gotta give an effort. You gotta, um, you gotta at least go for it.
1: Soon after his high school graduation, Christian felt a need to be away from his dad and to prove his manhood. This led him to enlist in the United States Army and volunteer to serve two tours of duty in the Iraq War.
0: I joined the the Army uh, immediately, right after, because this is the only way I knew at the time to take back uh, control of my life. Start making my own money get independent, get as far away from him as possible. We were, we were playing cards in the motor pool, and uh, the TV was on, and uh, CNN, and they were showing, like, the, the death toll was going up in Iraq. And I'm just looking at it. Something in me said, challenge yourself. And I didn't know what that voice was. Something was saying. And I, I realize now what it was. I had a question in my heart, and my dad never answered it for me. And that question was, do I have what it takes? Am I, am I a man, you know? Uh, do I have what it takes to to do something. My dad never answered that question for me, so I, I kind of felt like I had to find that answer myself. And the most masculine thing I could think of at the time was this war. And that's what I did. I got up and uh, I walked into uh, my commander's office. I said, I said, hey, LT, you know, I want to volunteer. And I remember him saying, you know, my master sergeant was in the room, too. And uh, they looked at me like, are you, are you sure? You want to volunteer to go, right? Um, I was like, yeah. And he goes, you know, I don't know if this makes you brave or stupid. And he walked out. And I looked at my master sergeant and I went, stupid. <laughs> right? it, it, it makes me stupid, <laughs> right? Um, and we, we laughed about that. And he came back a couple of days later and he had orders from me and, and off I went to, uh, to the war to go fight the war. And when you cross over that border and you hear that first mortar round go off, what did I just do? Why did I just? Why? What was, I, what was I thinking, you know, thinking, did I just sign my own death warrant? This is crazy. Um, the crackles of the gunfire, we, we drove uh, overnight, uh, so it's pitch black. There are no street lamps like in America. It's just pitch black, you know. You can see as far as the headlights in front of you. The only other light you see is from explosions, you know, just off in the distance. You know, it's just like, whoa. And we got to where we were going, and uh, they didn't have a mission for us. So eventually they said, you know, try moving further north, uh, and that's what we did. We moved north, and we kept moving north, and we kept moving further and further north, and nobody had a job. for us. finally, we got to uh, to Crit, uh which is Saddam's hometown. Somebody got the bright idea, and you want to do something? Here's what you'll do. And the only job that was available was the job nobody wanted, and that was to stir excrement, um... Because we don't have bathrooms like you would think of here in the States. Uh, just a big drum where everybody, <laughs> where everybody does their business. And it's got to go somewhere. And, uh, so you'd have to pour fuel on it, light it on fire, and stir it like stew until it dissipated, uh, until it evaporated. And that was my job, man. Like, um, that was the job we had. Uh, we did that. Eventually we got kicked up further north, further north, and we got so far north, we got to uh, Mosul and we got attached to the 101st Airborne Division. What a cool, cool thing that is, man. When you talk about legendary, legendary military units, you know, that is, that's it. And we were tasked with building uh, a railroad. That's what my job is, logistics not excrement stir um i'm a i'm a <laughs> i'm a logistician so um <laughs> uh we were tasked with building the largest railroad operation in a foreign country since world war ii and that was that was dangerous man you know um, people see you building a railroad they want to take that out you know um that's obvious like first rule of war even if you look back at like civil war days man that was they always blow up the line of transportation always so we were getting attacked, you know. Um, uh, luckily, the Iraqi forces are mostly made up of guerrilla. You know, it, it, it's a guerrilla force. People don't have any actual formal training, which, which is why I think the, the death count has been uh, as low as it has been for a war in comparison to other wars um, that we've been in this, because they actually don't know what they're doing. They're getting lucky, you know, they're getting lucky kills. So. But it worked out because, you know, if this had been somebody trained on the other end of that, been taken out plenty of times. Um, I remember this one time a a grenade came in. I do remember that. And it just kind of like bounced over and landed in between our feet. Military rule, you know, first person to see the grenade is supposed to jump on it. Save the rest of us. Now, if everybody sees it at the same time, it's supposed to be the lowest ranking person jumps on it, saves everybody else. I was not the lowest ranking. So we all looked at that guy, right? We all looked at him like, so he didn't move, nobody moved, man. And, uh, and luckily for us, uh, it didn't blow, it was like a dud. We all had to just stand still. And I remember this, um, this EOD unit from Boston uh, came out and, uh, and, and removed it for us. They, they were cool, they were really cool guys. Uh, they had Red Sox hats on and I was just like, <laughs> what do you want these jokers? And they hop out and they took care of it. Um, but you know, but, but things like that, where we really could have been in some danger had the enemy been more yeah. but we made it, and finally we got to the end of that tour. We went home. My dad wasn 't the first person at the airport. I remember that so vividly because I specifically told him, and i 'm expecting him to be there, and he wasn't and that was just such a such a complete picture of how he 's always been with me just never there you 're just never there for me, are you you know um and um, you 've always got something going on in your mind that 's more important than than this, um, and unfortunately, though uh, the army ordered me to go back to Iraq this time, uh, I didn't volunteer. I wasn't volunteer. I, <laughs> I learned my lesson. Not volunteering again. Proved what I had to prove to myself. I could do that. You know, I could survive. I. I don't have to prove anything else to myself. But they told me I had to go this time. Back out I went. We continued the mission of building that that railroad.
1: As if the dangers of working in a war zone were not enough, life threw Christian back into the wall, this time with a career-ending medical diagnosis, the same one that cost his mom her life when he was 13 years old.
0: And unfortunately, towards the end of that tour, we were in a suicide prevention class, basically where they tell you when you get home don't kill yourself, don't kick your dog, don't beat your wife because you're mad about what happened out here. And in that class, my vision started going in and out. And I, I didn't understand why things would just go black and then they would come to again, and then black and then come to, and just various states of blurry. And I, I can't figure out what's, what's going on with me. I got up, I, well I stood up, I tried to stand up anyway, and I just kind of fell over. And that's when uh, they decided to take me into the, to the hospital. And I get there and he's like, uh, describe your symptoms. And I, as I just start describing, he starts describing things back to me that I didn't tell him about, but he knew exactly what was going on. And he goes, you, you, you've got diabetes. And I cried. I cried so hard. Um, I had watched how quickly it took my mom. And it took her five years to die. It's not long, man, that's, that's, that's not long at all. So I'm thinking, you know, is that, what I'm, is that what I'm facing? And this is before I had an understanding of it, you know, and, and, and I'm like, is that, is that, home? like literally everything just changed in that one instant. Wow, like this is, this is crazy, I'm, I'm dead, I'm dead. And this, and this, this, wow. Um, so what they did was they took me uh, to Germany uh, to the big hospital because we were in a field hospital. It didn't have everything that a real woman did. So they took me over to Germany to get stabilized at the big hospital in Kaiserslautern. Um, spent a couple of weeks there getting stabilized. They were trying out all different kind of new medications and it was the most annoying thing in the world because the amount of needles that are going into you and it's like around the clock, you can't sleep. They don't allow you to sleep. It's like all night long, somebody's coming in 1 a.m., okay, we gotta poke you again. Blah, 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 blah. You just start getting your eyes closed, you know? Two again, okay, we gotta poke you again. It's like, can I, can I sleep, people? And there was literally no hour where somebody wasn't poking you, you know, for a couple of weeks, and it's like, well, we have to do this to figure out what, what works, what works, blah, blah, blah. And, um, uh, they kind of got my, my blood sugar down and stable, and they asked me, uh, do I want to go home to the States or do I want to finish out the tour? And uh, this was kind of one of those realization moments for me, where I had to stand up and say, um, "If I go home, that's kind of like me telling the diabetes at won. But it's like me saying, you know, it 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 beat me, and I I wasn't I wasn't about that. So I said, no no, you you can go ahead and send me back, and that's what they did. And everybody said, like, are you sure, you know? Um, and that's what I did. I went back into Iraq and I finished the tour. They didn't make me do any work. The, the duration of the tour, which, I started to get the idea. Like, oh, you people think I'm disabled. So, the tour ends, we come home, I take my month off, and. Uh, I'm back at work and I'm thinking, okay, you know, now that that's done, I'm, I'm making the adjustments to, to being a, a new diabetic. And at the time, they, they had me on a glucophage, which is these, uh, these pills that's used to break down the sugar. So I wasn't taking shots yet, just pills at that point. I could do pills, that's easy. I was like, you know. Yeah, that's when they pulled me in the office. And uh, they said, hey, I got some, some bad news for you. We have to reclass you. And I said, why? And they're like, well, uh, logistics. We have such a high rate of deployability that you're no longer able to, to, to be deployed. So we're gonna have to reclass you. And I said, reclass me to what? And they go, yeah, we're gonna reclass you to something in admin. And that's where I got angry, genuinely, genuinely angry. Because you're reducing me? We built the largest railroad in a foreign country since World War II, and you're taking me from that and telling me that you're gonna stick me behind a desk and I'm gonna be in papers. And, and, and get coffee, that's what you're, that, that's, this is what you're telling me I'm good for right now. And they're like, yeah. And not that there is anything wrong with it because I do believe every job plays its part. Everything is integral. That's not what I'm cut out for. I'm not meant to sit behind a desk and, and you can't make me. I came here to, to do something, to be active. And they were like, well, that's, that's what we got, you know? It's either that or we kick you out. And uh, at this time, I had just gone back to the, uh, the medical review board uh, getting some more tests taken on me and everything like that. and That's when they discovered, oh wait, uh, he doesn't need pills. We thought he was a type 2 because of his age. And, um, you know, but no, he's a type 1. And um, so, yeah, you have to go. I was just like, what? They're like, yeah, we're kicking you out. So I'm no good to them at all, you know. Well, you're 70% disabled, you know. Um, What what, what can we do with you and you're 70% disabled? And the military is so cut and dry about it too, you know, there's no emotional fluff, no trying to make it sound, no sugarcoating, no telling me in a nice way. It's no, you're 70% disabled, what are we gonna do with somebody who's 70% disabled, right? Get out. So I was out and very much in this crazy crossroads now, I just found out I have the disease that killed my mom. And I found out while I was at war, not a good place to find out bad information. But the doctor was also saying that that's probably why I got it, because uh, I had the gene uh, from my mom, but it, it, it laid dormant. And what's interesting is that if your father has type 1 diabetes, you're about 100 times more likely to have it passed on to you. If your mother has it, though, you have a 1 in 100 chance of getting it. I just happened to be the one in the one hundred, right? Thanks, thanks, life, right, right, <laughs> right. And uh, it was laying dormant. Uh, it's activated by stress. And I don't know if anybody's been to war, but pretty stressful. It's a pretty stressful time. People are trying to kill you. So that's what happened. And so all these different things, man. I, you know, I just survived this thing. I've got this disease now. Now you're also stunned by I don't have a job, right? Now you're telling me I'm seventy percent. It's just all these things compounding, and life was just hammering, hammering me, and hammering me, and hammering me. And
1: I'm just right back in the situation. What am I going to do? According to the Army, as a type 1 diabetic, Christian was 70% disabled. He received a medical discharge and returned to an uncertain civilian life without a place he called home. Would he give in to his depression or succumb to the disease that robbed him of his mother? Or would he persevere and renew his hope for a new way forward? We'll hear how Christian got out of the pits and back on track when we return to The Hopeful Hoosier, Episode 5. The Hopeful Hoosier podcast is made possible by AD Growth Advisors, an Indianapolis-based executive coaching firm, helping new leaders and entrepreneurs accelerate their professional development and growth. Learn more at adgrowthadvisors.com. Are you a leader who's frustrated with trying to bring out the best in your people every day? Would you like to know the secret to motivating people so that they actually want to do what you're asking them to do? Hi, I'm Andy Dix, and I am president and a board certified executive coach at AD Growth Advisors, an Indianapolis executive coaching firm. I help new and emerging leaders accelerate their professional development and growth so that they can bring out the best consistent performance from everyone they lead. If you'd like to talk about what matters most to you, give me a call at 317-538-3231. Once again, 317-538-3231. Or visit us on the web at adgrowthadvisors.com. Let's have a conversation about motivation. It's why we do what we do.
2: My name is Josh Bach, and I'm the chairman and CEO of Coffee, Community Outreach for Financial Education. And we are a 501c3 nonprofit that is incredibly passionate about delivering understanding and awareness of finances. And we do that through a number of different financial education classes, resources, but we get engaged with the community and we meet them where they're at so that we can help people really fully understand the importance of finances and how it can better their life. You go to coffeeusa.org, that's C-O-F-F. 1eusa.org.
1: E Walk the Talk Speaker series presents stories told by passionate speakers on topics that are timely yet timeless. For more information, visit walkthetalkseries.com.
2: Our mission is to create an epic shift in how people think.
1: Discharged from the Army, the only place Christian alatio had called home for his young adult life, Christian needed to get his life back on track, and that led him to rekindle a passion for motorsports.
0: And I, I started getting depressed. Um, I started feeling sorry for myself, throwing myself the, the pity party. You know, you know, this isn't fair. Life isn't life is fair, but in the back of my head, it was like, you know what? You know what was worse than this? Remember the four years that you spent in the storage unit? Remember how cold it got on that floor? You remember how, right? That was, that was actually worse than this, Christian, you know, right? You're fine. You're fine. You're fine. And I said, you know what? You know what? I am fine. I am fine. And I, I started to think back to what pulled me out of my depression. The last time I was this depressed. The last time I was this depressed was back in high school, going through it. The thing that saved me was uh, we had a little car club, and we used to do these uh, these autocross events. And autocross is basically just like a big parking lot or an airfield, and you set up cones in different configurations, and first one through the cones wins. If you hit a cone. Then they add on a second to your time. And now that I look back on it, a large part of that is what kept me and my mind off of the fact that I was homeless. You know, that I was in this situation is that, you know what, school is tough during the week, but come Saturday, I can go out and and be with my buddies and, you know, do all this stuff with the car. And that's what saved me. Autocross is what saved me. Cars are what saved me. And I said, okay, I'm back in another situation. How do I get out of it? And the answer clicked, cars cars yes and that's what I did I, I decided to get back into autocross I had a few uh, dollars saved away from my time in Iraq because it's tax-free um, your income out there plus the hazard duty pay on top of your regular pay so I had a little, little change and I went and bought a uh, Nissan 350z and I loved that car so much um, and it was so much fun and we went through the cones and it really started to pull me out of that that funk that I was in um, but I knew I knew there was more and I had to come up with a real plan as to what I'm going to do with my life what's my new goal you know, where, where's, where's my new goal line? So from autocross, I found out that there were professional autocross leagues uh, in the SCCA, which is the Sports Car Club of America. And uh, I started setting my sights on that. And as we moved forward in that, I recognized that, you know what, I don't want to drive through cones anymore. I want something more. I want like a, like a real, real racing.
1: Most of us are willing to settle for the average normal eight to five life with maybe a couple of bucket list dreams. For a few driven people like Christian Alatio, they understand that the difference between a wish and a goal are the plans you have and the actions you take. They find hope, which is an expectation that something desired will actually happen in believing where there's a will, there's a way. There may be many sacrifices and hardships to endure and overcome, but for them, the prize is worth the price to play. I just started sending people emails, teach me about this. The
0: first thing I learned was that I needed a racing license. And the second thing I learned was that that was an expensive thing to do because they started to explain to me that you had to attend this school, that school, this school, that school, this one, this one's 10000 that one's 5000 and this one's another five. And I'm just like, wow, okay, so basically I'm looking at $20,000 that I don't have because it all just went into this car. So I'm like, okay, uh, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do this? So I kept emailing, kept emailing, kept emailing, kept emailing. And then finally I got an email from a gentleman out in California. He's like, this is interesting. How serious are you? I said, I am more serious than you can imagine. He goes, well, prove it. And he says, where are you now? I said, I'm at Fort Wachuca. He goes, I'm in California. I looked it up on the map. You're about 18 hours from me. You got 24 to get him. go, what? Okay. All right. So I jump in the car and I drive. I drive to California and, and I meet with this guy. Like He goes, well, here's the deal I got for you. I have a four mile long racetrack and I have nobody to cut the grass. I've got nobody to hang all the signs up around here. I have nobody to paint. Uh, Tracks got to be painted. You got to put the yellow lines here. You got to do, you know, I have nobody to do any of that on race days. I need somebody to sell tickets, souvenirs, peanuts, popcorn, the whole nine, all of that. I have nobody to pull security at night. And I'm just like, oh, wow. Okay. He goes, so I tell you what, if you do all of that for me, right, you're going to be an an all-in-one guy. If you do all of this for me on the days when I have time, I will take you out back. He had a, um, an 87 to 80Z. He's like, you know, we'll take that out and I'll teach you how to do this. And now the track had its own racing school. He goes, we'll accrue enough hours that I can sign off on your racing license. And I was just like, really? You do that? He's like, yeah, I would tell you that as long as you're doing all this for me. I said, great. You know, when, when, when do I start? He goes, oh, wait, wait, wait. I didn't get to the important part yet. Here's the, here's the part that may, may make this or break this for you. I said, what's that? He goes, I don't have any money to pay you. And he's like, and I need at least a year-long commitment from you. So in my head, I'm thinking a year, no income. But at the same time, this is the only shot I've got. How uncomfortable am I willing to get to seize the opportunity? And I said, okay, can can, can I think about that? Can I think? He's like, yeah, you got some money to think about it. And I drove back, and I'm thinking in my head, how do I go a year with no income? How do I make this work? And I said, it doesn't matter how you make it work. You just jump, build your wings right Right as you're, as you're on the way down. So I was like, nope, I'm doing it. Don't know how I'm doing it, but I'm doing it. So uh, that's what I did. I got home, packed all my bags, and right back down to California I went. I ended up selling the 350Z for a lot less than it was worth because I needed money to live off of. I needed money so I could feed myself. That's what happened. Um, I went out and I got a 95 Thunderbird because it had a big back seat, very spacious back seat. And that was my idea, was I'm just gonna sleep in the backseat of my Thunderbird. Guess I'm homeless again. But this is where the other times I was homeless prepared me for this, you know? Um, What is one year in the backseat of your car compared to the multiple years on the concrete floor? Like, that's a breeze. I can get through this easy, I thought. So that's what I did. I did it and was able to achieve my first racing license. And thank God, too, it came when it did because I was really getting tight on cash.
1: After obtaining his race car driver's license, Christian continued to pursue his motorsports goal by taking jobs at a Formula BMW school and as a Porsche test driver. During a chance meeting with driver Randy Popst, Randy told Christian that most of his money came from being a stunt driver in Mazda's Zoom Zoom commercials, and not from racing. Randy advised Christian that if he wanted to make a living as a race car driver, he should consider driving in NASCAR. I said okay.
0: Um, and I uh, worked my way from the bottom. So we started out uh, the wheel of All American series, late models, some legends car races. Uh, that was that was a lot of fun and worked our way all the way up. Um, we had a development deal with a uh, modified tour team. That was great and we're, we're, we're moving up, you know, and this is all just me being persistent, you know, just bothering people, you know, just becoming so annoying that you, you, you have to pay attention to me. And then we had an opportunity for a truck series ride. And for those who know about racing, you know, the top three rungs of NASCAR. You got the what's now the Monster Energy Cup at the very top. Uh, then you have got the Xfinity Series right underneath that, similar to Indy Lights, if you're an IndyCar fan. And then you've got the Camping World Truck Series right under that. You know, but these are the the national runs. These are the ones that are on TV. Those three series, you you've made it. So I've got an opportunity now to be you know a Camping World Truck Series driver in this competition. And um, this competition was half uh, marketability and half driver ability. So the two of those would combine and make you the winner. Uh, I ended up finishing in second place uh, on the on the driver side of things, and it all came down to then the marketability. And uh, there was another guy, uh, Ryan Rust, uh, down in Florida. Uh, cool, cool guy. I like I like Ryan, but, uh, but he won. And so I'm I'm over here relegated to second. I'm like ah, we were that close. And if anybody anybody who knows me knows that I hate second place. More than I hate last. I would so much rather finish last than second because if I finish last, at least I know we didn't have a prayer. The equipment wasn't there. I wasn't there. Something was going horribly wrong. We didn't even have a shot today. Uh, as opposed, to, I finish second. That stings more than more than anything. Because I'm right there. You know, right? Um, I'm right there knocking on that door. So I finish second. I'm just like, man. well, but what happened was what ended up being cool. The CEO of CR England, America's largest refrigerated trucking company. He's a big NASCAR fan. He is a retired sergeant major, Army, and so he just loves the hell out of veterans. He asked the people who were running the competition, big fan racing, that team, if, if they had any veterans that were part of the, the program. And I'm the only one. I'm always the only one, really, usually. Yeah, I'm always the only, the only guy who's, um, who's done that in, in his life. So he's like, I want to support that guy. And they tried to explain to him, yeah, yeah, but he finished second, right? And he's like, no, no, I want that guy. He's the veteran. That's, that's the one I want as, as my driver. And so they started throwing money around uh, the the terms, and he said we could part with about nine hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Now I had never seen that amount of money before. I had no idea, like you know. Um, but it, as far as racing budget, that's nothing. You know what I mean? That's 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 pennies. But that's what he was offering. And so we're like, okay. So uh, the plan was to take that nine hundred and fifty thousand dollars. We would get two race trucks. These were probably going to be back of the pack race trucks, and we, we understood that coming into it. But the idea was, we take a truck that's supposed to finish in last place, we turn it into a top 25 truck, right? Because uh, for us, finishing in that top 25 would feel like a win. Given the equipment, given the, the difference in equipment, that's a win for us, you know. And that's 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 what we had planned to do. And that way, we could reapproach the sponsors next year, and we could say, look, you know, we turned this last place piece of machinery into a top 25 truck. Imagine what we could do with a, with a, with a million more dollars, right? right? We could put this thing up front, I'm telling you. You know, making, uh, making water and wine over here, right? So uh, that was the plan. But the way that yours and my license plate will expire at some point, and we need to uh, re-register that for the next year, is the same way at NASCAR, uh, the whole car expires, the whole truck expires, right? So you're only allowed to use this truck from this year to this year. NASCAR homologates it and says, you can only use it from this time to this. (laughs) And life is funny, man, because a missed email here or a missed email there turns everything upside down. That's exactly what happened. We ended up buying two trucks that were a year out of homologation meaning we can't use them. And they wouldn't allow us to sell them back, you know, right? Uh, the, the team that we got them from was like, no, 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 suckers, Where are you? you bought them, right? Um, they're, they're yours now. And like that's how you lose a million bucks. And uh, at this point, I threw my hands up in the air, done with NASCAR. And I'm out now, and I don't know what the next move is for me. And luckily, Jody uh, Barber, who is the former celebrity chair lead for the Celebrity Cook-Off by Children's Bureau here in Indianapolis. Jay Howard couldn't make it. She, he was supposed to be the driver that was on the bill that, that day, and he couldn't make it. And uh, Jody and I connected, and she's like, hey, would you be interested in coming to Indianapolis and taking Jay Howard's place as celebrity chef at this, as for the Children's Bureau? Okay, I'd never been here before i come. I do the cook-off. And amazing experience, Children's Bureau, Absolutely incredible. Uh, one of my favorite places to volunteer. I, I, I do the event for them. I'm out and I end up connecting with, with Jay, you know. I'm just, oh man, thanks because, you know, if you had come I wouldn't have been able to do this. I got to meet too many people, yada, yada, yada. We start talking about IndyCar thing. He's like, yeah, I love it, and all this stuff. And he's, he's British, so, you know, uh, here's a guy, international, comes over and makes this work for him and he's explaining to me that it's so friendly, it's so welcoming, the environment is so welcoming. And it's true, you look at the number of women that have come through IndyCar, it's more than any other series. You look at the number of minorities, you know, you know, Sato won the 500 years ago, becoming the first Japanese guy to win. It's like, that's, that, th- this is the kind of diversity that, that comes through IndyCar um, that you don't find anywhere else in any of the series. So he's really starting to, like, push me into that, push me into that. And I, and I, I wasn't sold yet. What's, what got me sold was my first time here in Indianapolis. Somebody said, you have to go to the Speedway. You have to come to the museum. You have to see the pagoda. I got here, and the hooks went in. Like, <laughs> you know, I saw this. And I did more than see it, though I, I felt it. I felt that that, uh, that energy. And as I, as as you walk through here, um, you look through through the history, and you look through just um, all the, the, the prestige. Just you you just get this this feeling like you're. It's just such an such an iconic place, man. And I I was like I gotta have it. I gotta have it. You know I am I am hooked. I am definitely hooked. Um, and I came back to Jay, and I said, all right. How do we make this happen? Because I need it now. Now I need it. You know, first time looking at that Borg water, it was just like, how, 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 how do, how do we get to be a part of that? And then Jay explained to me, you know, it's going to be a transition period, obviously, because you're coming from sports cars, you're coming from stock cars. You know, this is now open wheelers. Now, the cool thing was that um, I had driven a couple of open wheelers back at that Formula BMW school that I worked at. And NASCAR kind of gave me the love for ovals. And luckily, IndyCar is the only place that combines the two. It's the only place you can drive a Formula car on an oval. No other series does that. It just made all the, all the sense in the world. Like, I have this love for Formula cars, but I also have this love for ovals now. And like, this is the biggest oval. This is it. This is it, right? And he's, so he, he kind of talked me into uh, getting into midgets uh, for a little bit and just to make that transition a little bit easier. So we did that. Had a couple of couple of pretty nasty wrecks in the midget. Those things flipped really easily, broke a couple of bones. But that's okay. It's all it's all part of the part of the job. We survived that and, and now we've moved on to the road dandy, which is the series and the, the ladder that we're that we're on now to making that that happen. And um, I am just as dedicated, just as just as determined, just as ready, 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 ready to give it all, to give it my all yet. Yeah to get that man this is um this is such a big thing uh when, when i got the book deal uh first off i was looking for people to be a part of it and just see how they wanted to be a part of it and i got to meet willie t Ribbs and who wrote the forward to my book willie t you know the first african-american to drive the indy 500 uh first african-american to drive a formula one car as well just listening to him his story and you know him really putting it into me how I, this this is big man like like you know right um this, this, this is big, right? This is so much bigger than you. I read his forward to me from my own book at least once a week because um, it's his way of talking. It's his way of keeping me hungry for it and keeping me motivated for it. This is not the easiest thing in the world to do. This is not the easiest thing, especially when you come from my position, you can't name a single race car driver who was homeless, you know, and uh, I found that with every challenge I faced, there was always a sacrifice that would overcome whatever the challenge was. It's all a matter of how willing I was to be uncomfortable.
1: When we continue our conversation with Christian Latio from the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Museum, he'll share more about his autobiography, My Life and Story, The Outside Groove, and the lessons Christian has learned from living the outside groove that can challenge you to run your life's race to the fullest. The Hopeful Hoosier, Episode 5, will continue in a moment. The Hopeful Hoosier Podcast is made possible by AD Growth Advisors, an Indianapolis-based executive coaching firm, helping new leaders and entrepreneurs accelerate their professional development and growth. Learn more at adgrowthadvisors.com. The Amplify Hope program is a 90 day training program for nonprofit professionals and social driven
2: entrepreneurs. During this 90-day program, you'll learn about sustainability, marketing your nonprofit, working with volunteers, fundraising, compliance, board development, all the important aspects of having a successful nonprofit organization. The
1: mission of the Amplify Hope program is truly to optimize your nonprofit so that way you can help serve more people and make a bigger difference. This program is 90
2: days, and you will have massive, positive social impact on your communities. To learn more about this program, go to AmplifyIndy.com.
1: Andy Dix here, and we're not quite back to the podcast yet. This is actually a commercial for AD Growth Advisors. See, when I'm not producing The Hopeful Hoosier, I'm actually the president and board certified executive coach at AD Growth Advisors. I help highly effective leaders understand the four key character qualities that people look for in deciding whether or not to follow them. According to the Gallup Company, people want leaders who consistently show trust, stability, compassion, and hope. Hope's an unshakable belief in a good future for everyone in the organization. It's an expectation that everything can work out for the best with the team's best efforts. That's why I produce The Hopeful Hoosier podcast. I want to challenge you to accelerate your professional development so you can be a hopeful leader. I work with my clients confidentially and one-on-one to help them to achieve their professional development goals faster than they can do so on their own. Ready to get on the growth fast track? Then let's have a meaningful conversation. Call or text me at 317-538-3231. Once again, that's 317-538-3231. Or visit us on the web at adgrowthadvisors.com. In the epilogue to his book, The Outside Groove, Christian writes, The so-called realists will tell you it's too hard. They'll ask, why don't you quit? They'll say, you have a chronic disease. Your last name isn't Andretti. You don't have a rich daddy. You haven't been go-karting since the age of five, and most of the guys out there don't even look like you. You have every disadvantage in the book, and no one would blame you if you just quit. I'm the underdog of underdogs. But that is what makes this the outside groove.
0: Okay, so the outside groove, as far as um, racetracks go, it's the part of the track closest to the wall. And it's where it takes the most guts to run you know, because when you're up against that wall, any slip of the, and you're going into it, and that's what makes it the most dangerous, dangerous part. It's much safer to stay in that middle groove, stay on the low side of the track. And the title of this book came to me at uh, Mahoning Valley Speedway in, in, in Pennsylvania, because it's one of those tracks where in order to make some passes, you have to be up there to go to that dangerous part if you're gonna, you know, um, if you're gonna do it. And so that's where it came to me because I was like, you know what, that kind of reflects my life and the sacrifice I've had. I've had to put myself into the outside group, the most dangerous part of the track in order to move forward. I've had to take on that fear and move past
1: it. Tell me what parallels you draw between your life experience and your tenacity Mm -hmm. and where you find your hope Mm -hmm. to keep trying to chase this dream that no one with your criteria of life, homeless, diabetic, all those things, no one's Mm -hmm. done this. What keeps you going? Where's the hope?
0: Uh, the hope for me comes from a lot of different places, to be honest. Part of it comes from my own competitiveness and something inside of me that wants to be immortal. Something in inside of me wants to be remembered for something on this earth. I want my time to be marked here. You know, I don't feel like I, I was just put here by accident, and I, I want to fulfill whatever that is, and I want to take it to... Uh, the highest that I can take that. So part of that is is, is just something on, on, on my end that nags at me, you know, make a mark, make a mark, make a mark, leave your mark, Christian, leave your mark. Right, right? Make them remember. They they need to know you were on this earth. You were here. You were here. But then there's another side of that which uh, is spread throughout the people. And that's that that's really what I I, I feel like I, I represent. Is the people and I represent possibility. I represent a, uh, a hope, you know, I volunteer at Children's Bureau a lot because I am that kid and I see it in them and they're going through just the worst of situations. Their parents have put them in a situation, you know, for whatever reason, I'm not blaming um, anybody, but just looking at the kid, he's in this situation and had no control over it. You know, the people who were in charge of him put him in this situation to the point where he's not at home anymore, he cannot be at home. You know, he's in, he's in a shelter until they can find a better place for him. And I go there because I see me, and I I, I, I need that kid to know what I didn't know when I was in that situation. I need that kid to see an example. I need that kid to know it gets better if you keep pushing. You keep digging. You keep digging, you know? Um, And and, and you stay positive, and it gets better on the other side of this, you know? And you can have your life back. You will will take it back. I need them to see that. I'm at the children's hospital a bunch as well, and that's because... I see myself in that. You know, here's someone who's sick and I'm sick. And I need you to know that if you're not smiling, you're not doing sick right. And th- that is something that I, I recognize. I'm, I'm not my mom. here's somebody with just uh, a poor attitude about the situation and given up and depressed and angry and, and, and hopeless. But that's not me. That's not me. And, and I've, I've learned to smile through this and I, I don't let it take my smile away. And I encourage the kids at the hospital to do the same. If you're not smiling, and you're sick, you're not doing it right. And I need them to know there are no limits. They're gonna tell you that there's limits. Oh, you can't do this or, 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 or you can't do that because you're quote unquote disabled, you know? Um, this doesn't work or that doesn't work. Well, guess what? You, you can make it work. And that's the beauty about being a human being. You have the ability through your heart, through the amount of heart that you have, through the amount of guts that you have, the amount of, of intestinal fortitude that you have, you can make this thing happen. I think about uh, Billy Monger. Kid who lost his legs last year in an auto racing accident. 16 years old, lost his legs. Billy is back in the car racing this year. Prosthetic legs. How cool. His heart allowed him to overcome that and to do this. And that's that's what I want to represent to these kids. They're going to tell you you can't do this because you did that. They're going to tell you you can't do this because you got that. They're going to tell you you can't do this. And it's it's all lies, man. Um, they're looking at it from their perspective. But if you have a different perspective, if you have a different perception of the situation, if you begin to play, the card you were dealt, like it was the hand you were given, you will find a way. If you play it like this isn't something that happened to me, but I'm going to happen to it, you will find the way out of it. And that's what I'm here for. I'm here for that that kid in that hospital bed who thinks I'm sick. I can't do it. Yeah, you can. I'm here for that kid who's in that shelter. I can't. I can't do this. You have a saying. Tough times don't last, but tough people do. And it's 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 so it's so true. I am evidence of this, and I'm proving it every day. And, That's what I want these people to see in me. And if I can reach the pinnacle, if I can reach the summit of the mountain, if I can reach the Indianapolis 500, the most prestigious race in the entire world, the biggest oval on the planet, this is it. If I can do that, it's such a small amount of human beings who make it to that level to be able to do that, right? 33 get to do it uh, uh, every year, but there are 8 billion people on the planet. 33 get to do this out of 8 billion there is no way anybody can tell me they can't do anything they, they want to do. And if I can do it from the position I've done it in, if I can do it from homeless, if I can do it from sick, if I can do it from just everything that has happened to me, what what, what reason does anybody have, honestly?
1: In a sport that's known for being incredibly expensive to participate in, your key sponsorship is a food bank. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> tell, tell me about that. Uh, yes,
0: uh, Gleaners Food Bank, uh, and I have a... Wonderful relationship with the people here in in Indiana, and the reason why it works is because we're inspiring the people that we feed. I unfortunately did not partake in the use of food banks when I was struggling, and we probably should have. I didn't know it was available to me. You know, I was a kid. I didn't I didn't know that that was a thing. And that's such a, it's such a valuable resource for those in poverty. It's such a valuable resource for those who are living homeless. You know, it's it's such a great relationship because we're in the greatest city in racing. You know, the building. That we're inside of has a sign right on the front of it says the racing capital of the world so to recognize where we are and to tie that mission to helping the people of indiana overcome their food insecurity is tremendous tremendous to me tremendous to me because i know what that's like i get it you only had one meal today i get that you had two i get that you keep pushing though because i'm pushing for you The things that we get to do and the opportunities that we have now it's 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 not just about me not just about me at all i think about everybody who's on the journey of anything that i've ever gone through um, from the veterans to the diabetics to the homeless to the hungry to all of it you know i think about everyone and everyone is on that ride with me i'm proud i'm so proud to represent something that people aren't proud of people aren't proud to be food insecure Nobody goes around with the flag waving it, I'm food insecure, I'm hungry, I'm homeless. Nobody, nobody says these things. And I know that because I was there. I was very much that kid trying to hang on to my pride. I can't tell anybody the, of, of, about my situation, you know, because it's nothing to be proud of. Well, guess what? Let's turn that around. I'm turning this thing around. I'm saying I'm proud to represent you guys. I'm, I'm so proud because I'm a product of that. I am you. And I'm very proud to continue to do this despite what everybody thinks of you if you're in a bad situation, food insecure homeless, despite what anybody says about you because you're food insecure homeless, besides, you know, whatever people want to tell you, you're disabled and you, you, you can't do anything. 70% is what the government tells me. Uh, the U.S. Army considers me 70% disabled. That is the majority of my body is what they're telling me. And you're wrong. You're so wrong because you didn't account for my heart. That's what you, that, that, that's the part you missed out. 70% disabled. My heart says I'm 100% abled. able, and that overcomes the 70% that you think I am.
1: Christian, what life lessons in this race of a lifetime that you've had so far, and still have hopefully many, many laps to go, what have you learned that you could teach someone who's listening to our podcast today?
0: Remember where you were in your hardest time in your life. And the reason I say that is because you're still here now. That time didn't kill you. And in relation to whatever you're going through now, versus whatever you consider the hardest time in your life to be and you made it, you can get through this, too. You can get through this. This is no worse than than you were in that situation. This is no worse than that. that, that that's been my whole life. I put everything into relation. Literally anything that goes wrong, ever, I put it into relation. Um,
1: we're, we're sitting in the Unser exhibit here at the Hall of Champions at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and we're surrounded by memorabilia paintings. And each, each car that's here that was a winner and everything mm-hmm. represents a team that overcame any right. kind of challenges yes, the track could throw at them and the competition could throw at them that day.
0: Yes, they did.
1: How does that play out in your race that you've been running? And what do you think is as advice for the person who's listening, how can they read the track and decide, is it time to go into that outside groove mm. and make their move to make a big difference like you're making?
0: it's it's interesting that you mentioned the word team because you're absolutely right you know no driver does it by himself it is very much a team effort yes as the pilot of the car it looks like it's just you but you've got people in your ear the whole race you've got your spotter and for those who don't know the spotter is the gentleman uh, who sits atop the track Uh, he's got his binoculars and he's looking out for you and the reason for that is because when you're in the car you've got your hans device on your hans device goes over your your neck and it's got a a board basically um, that's strapped to the back of your neck. But because of it, it really limits your vision. There's a tether that goes from the helmet to the backboard and so it's it's here on you and you can only really turn, you know, here and here. You don't you don't have a full view of vision. You know, you've got your mirrors but there are blind spots obviously because you can only see from here to here with your own eyes. You got your spotter who stands there up top and he's looking at everything. And he tells you if there's somebody on the outside. So if I'm, if I'm down low, and I wanna make a move to the outside, I'll ask, and he'll tell me. He'll be like, hey, you got one on your outside, one on your outside, you know, uh, cause I can't see that, so it's good that he, you know, okay, stay where you are, stay put, stay put, you got one on your outside, perfect. And here we are working together as a team. In actual life, I kinda think of God as my spotter. He's up there, top of the track, and he's, he's looking out, you know? Through listening to him, um, I know when to make my move. You know, go low, stay, stay, stay low, stay low, stay low. You got one on the outside, one on the outside, right? You got two right behind you, two right behind you. And, and, and just kind of talking, talking through that. But for those, you know, who, who may not subscribe to, to that way of, of thinking, uh, the team is still important. The team is still essential. You know, you got your friends, you got your family. If you put yourself around the right people, you know, um, that's so important. Uh, people who are encouraging you, people who are always telling you, you know, keep going. People just, just, just giving you that support, making you feel like you can do it. That That is definitely something uh, to keep in mind. But in life, very much so. The same way the track changes every lap around is the same way life changes, no two days are exactly the same, and each one is filled with its challenges, what I can say is I encourage everyone to fall in love with the challenges. Challenges have a negative stigma because we think of them as problems. Who wants problems? This is in my way. This is in my way. When you become addicted to the feeling you get from overcoming the challenge, Oh, that's, that's where the magic is right there. Once you start to look at challenges in a different way, and something I always do, I, I never use the word hard anymore. Um, I always use the word challenge. And it's because I love challenges, right? I hate when things are hard. But I love challenges and everything is a challenge. Nothing is hard. And that's actually got like a, like a psychological uh, thing to it too. the minute you say out your mouth, this is hard, your brain re- hears that right back. And now we're in, oh, this is too hard mode, right? However, if I say it's a challenge out of my mouth, my brain hears it's a challenge and it knows that we love us some challenges. Bring it on, right? So that, that's something I, I definitely encourage. You know, Everybody stop using the word hard. Never say that word again. Nothing is hard. Nothing is hard. Everything is a challenge and we love some challenges. What does winning mean to you? Everything. Winning, winning means everything. It's the reason why I hate second place more than I hate last. It's because how could we get so close and not not get over, or get over that hump, right? Winning this particular race just means I... <laughs> oh man, sometimes I think sometimes to myself, when a child is born, what do his or her parents want for him or her? What do they think their child is capable of? People who have become these monumental things. I, I often wonder that. Did their parents think they were going to become that? Did they think they were going to become the president? You know? Did they, did they ever think you were going to become this or, 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 or become that? How shocking you know? Right? right. is it? And, and it means everything to me because the next time I do see my mom, the next time I do see my mom, I got something to tell her. It. And, and it's like, hey, you... Uh, you missed a few things, right? You've been, you've been gone for a while and you, you missed a few things. And one of those things was this thing that you never saw from me, this thing that I never saw from me, this thing that I never imagined, that I'm a professional athlete, I've done all this really cool stuff and, and I, I, I won the Indianapolis 500. Years. Your son, your, your kid did that. So that's what it means to me. It's it's the opportunity for me to make my mark. It's the opportunity for me to live on through this, throughout the the halls of history, to be right here in this room. You know, to have somebody walk through and be looking at my helmet in that glass case, my fire suit in this in this glass case, and I'm gone. You know, I'm 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 long gone, but I never left. I'm still here, in the place that, that I want to be, in the place that means something to racism. So that's what this represents to me. Yeah, yeah. This is, this is the opportunity to go back and tell my mom, hey, you, you missed something, right? Um, your, your, your kid did that. And I, and I don't know. I, I honestly, I don't know what she saw for me um, as my parent. I don't know what was in her mind of what she thought I could accomplish or what she thought I could be. But whatever it was, I want to honor the 13 years that she gave me because I had such a solid foundation in that first 13 years that I was able to get through everything else. And she tried her, her damnedest to give me that solid foundation. So from the private schools to the, you know, to, to, to the, the, the best neighborhoods, yeah. so, you know, to, to, to all, all, all this stuff, you, you really put just such a good solid base that when I was out of that base, I was still able to function. I was still able, I didn't lose myself in what everybody else was doing, you know, the gangs, the drugs, the this, the that. The, I didn't lose myself in any of that because I had such a strong foundation. You taught me so well. You taught me so well that first 13 years of what this is and, and, and how to proceed and how to move forward. And I want to I want to honor that. And that's what that's what winning winning that means. It's because that little 13 years, all those little lessons that you gave me, this is the outcome of it. Add all of them up. It equals an Indianapolis 500. That's that's what you did for me. mom. All of that equals an Indianapolis 500. And you didn't even know it. you didn't know that everything you were teaching me equals the pinnacle of motorsports. But it does. And it's it's, it's very much to its honor.
1: Make the call Mm -hmm. of Christian Alatio winning the 500 as you come around, turn four. (laughs) What's it sound like?
0: Okay, well, Annalaysio comes out of turn four. He's headed down, right down, down, down the back stretch. He's held off the field, uh, you know. Right, fuel, fuel is, is 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 crucial at this point. You know, um, he didn't think he was gonna get there, but it looks like they're gonna make it. Annalaysio takes the checkered flag at the Indy 500. show makes history. Go ahead and get your milk, sir. Go on down to Victory Lane and get your milk, right? All um, right. And there I am kissing the bricks, and I've got, I've got my family with me. You know. Um, And who knows, maybe Romana and I are married at that time. You know, I got my wife with me and we're we're, we're kissing the bricks and and it's just,
1: yes, you know, yes, yes. Last question I've got for you. What challenge, if someone stuck with us all this time through Mm. this story, what challenge do you issue for them to pick up wherever they are, their challenge, Mm. so that they can make a difference and create a hopeful future here in the state of Indiana like you're doing?
0: I challenge you to understand that there is no door ever made that does not have a keyhole. And once you understand that everything, literally everything, has a keyhole, you just have to find the key. That's what I challenge. I challenge you to look at everything in your life, everything that seems impossible. I can't do that. I can't do this. I don't have the finances. Really? 'Cause so I don't I didn't have the finance, but I got here. I don't have the education for this. Really? I, I had never driven a race car until I got to California, you know. But I do this, so when people tell you, oh, I don't have the education, you know, I don't have, all the, all, the, all the different reasons you can come up with. And they sound good to you. Excuses sound best to the person making them, right? It sounds legit. Like, no, I legitimately can't do that because I have this in my way, and that's in my way, and that's in my way. I challenge you to remember that every door has a keyhole. There is no door you've ever come across that did not have a keyhole in actual life, and that's the same truth in whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. There is a keyhole and there is a key. It may not be where you want the key to be. That's the thing. The key may not be five feet in front of you. It may not be, oh, just let me lift up the rug and and it's there. It may be, I have to go on a search. I got to dig six feet and there's the key under the six feet, but it's there. That's the point I'm making is that the key may not be in the most convenient of places, But it's there and it will open the door if you are willing to go find the key, if you're willing to go get it. If you're willing to be just a little bit uncomfortable, if you're willing to make just that little bit of sacrifice, because that's that's the equalizer. Sacrifice is the equalizer. It makes you an Andretti. Marco and I are on the same level. He's got more connections, more money. His grandfather's Mario. It's like he's got all of that. But you know what the equalizer is? The amount of sacrifice that I put in and that puts us on the same. We're on the same plane now, you know, right? We're we're, we're in the same building. We're in the same we're in the same arena. We're doing the same exact thing. It's because sacrifice is the ultimate equalizer. So for everybody who has an opportunity that you don't have, anybody who has the money that you don't have, the, oh, well, he had a good family background. I didn't have that. And he had this and he had that and she had this and she had that. And you're looking at every other reason to let yourself off the hook from this thing that's nagging at you. The equalizer is that sacrifice. And trust me, that that person that you're looking up to that has all these things that you don't have, You make up for it with that sacrifice, and I guarantee you are equal. And through that sacrifice, you will have the same exact key that he has that opens his door. And we can't look at it as, oh, you know, it was easy for him to have that key, and it sucks for me that I have to go through all this. It doesn't matter if it sucks for you. The point is, you got the key. It doesn't matter if it sucks. It doesn't matter if you have to do a little more work. You just get there. You just, and that's it. That's it. People who climb Mount Everest, nobody gets to the top of the mountain and and, and discusses what, oh, well, you know, I had this equipment and I had that equipment. No, you get a high five from the other guy who's up there because you're up here, too. You know, nobody says, oh, well, how did you get here? How did you get here? The point is we got here. That's the point. And we high five about it and we can talk about getting up there. It's not about who had it easier. It's not about who had it harder. It's not about he he had this circumstance. I had that circumstance. It doesn't matter what he's got. This is your life. Focus on you. Here's what I need to do to get there. It doesn't matter what he's doing. I have to get here and here's what I need to do. Here's what I have to sacrifice to find that same key. And all the looks on their faces when you open that door. And they weren't expecting you to be here because they saw you with your little shovel. They saw you picking at it. They saw you looking for the key they saw and They were, <laughs> as they just went ahead and opened it because it was a the key they already had. The looks on their faces is going to be worth it. When you open that door and, oh, you remember, well, got it. And that's what I challenge everybody to do. Just un- first understand that there's a keyhole. There's no door without one. Your sacrifice will find the key.
1: And that's the road that that's leads road. to a checkered flag and a winner's circle. That's right. A Borg Warner trophy. Oh man! And a big drink of milk.
0: Oh yeah. Oh yeah, man. Oh and yeah. Oh yeah, two percent, two percent milk.
1: And I, what that's <laughs> what drives you.
0: <laughs> that's that's what drives me. Yeah.
1: And that's what makes you a hopeful Hoosier. That's what
0: makes me a hopeful Hoosier, man, and happy, happy to be a Hoosier. I am a, I'm a transplant, obviously, and and um, so to go from Washingtonian to a Hoosier, man, I am I am definitely proud.
1: And oh, you're putting down yeah, roots, yeah, and yeah. you're you're being a part of our community, and helping yeah. youth and people that are struggling with some of the same issues you have to figure out that there's a race for them to win too. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, all they have to do is start their engines.
0: Just start the engine and go, you, and you'll figure it out. Once you understand that every 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 door has a keel, you will you will then begin to find find the way. and Nothing is hard. Awesome. Everything's a challenge, um, and we love challenges. So you're good.
1: When we look at the yeah. classic definition of hope. Mm. that psychologists say what creates hope what it means is basically firmly believing and acting that if there's a will there's a way Mm -hmm. and that's the way you live every day faith man
0: i i am i've got i've got faith in whoever's guiding me up there and i've got Faith in, in, in myself. Got so, so much faith, faith in myself. You know, I've come through all of this and I'm still here. How could I not have, have faith in my, And it's the same for you too. Look at your, look at your whole life. Look at everything you've gone through and you're still here. How could you not have faith in yourself? So yeah, be, be hopeful, be hopeful, live in it. Don't visit your hope, live in it Permanent. Residence, you get your mail at Hope. That's where you need to, you need to live here. You know, you're throwing dinner parties at Hope. So many of us live what seem like two realities. There's my real reality, and then there's those few times that I feel hopeful. But then, you know, life happens, then I'm not hopeful anymore, and I go back to my real reality. I mean, no, you have to live here, move in. Yeah, don't spend, don't spend a, a day out of it, man. Just live in it all the time, all the time. Awesome. Thank you, my friend. Thank you.
1: Thanks again to Christian Alatio for allowing us to take a few laps with him. You can find his book, My Life Story The Outside Groove, at your favorite bookseller. You can also follow Christian on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. His name's spelled, by the way, K R I S T I A N A L E I X O. If you've enjoyed episode five of the Hopeful Hoosier podcast, please follow us wherever you download your podcast. And we certainly appreciate your favorable comments. It helps us share these amazing stories with even more people. You can also follow the Hopeful Hoosier podcast on Facebook. Special thanks to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Museum for allowing us to record there. Our recording engineer was Sarah Dix. I hope this episode has encouraged you to think seriously about driving on the outside groove. I'm your Hopeful Hoosier host, Andy Dix. Thanks for listening. The Hopeful Hoosier Podcast is a production of AD Growth Advisors Incorporated. Copyright 2018. All rights reserved.